Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Clearwater, Florida. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Twenty-nine-year-old Adrian Robert was the kind of girl you wanted to be around. She had a laugh that made you want to laugh and a kind of quirky kindness that made everyone gravitate towards her. She grew up in Maine and in high school did the absolute most. She was a great student, was part of the cheerleading squad, and on top of that, the Sun Journal reports that she decided to co-found the school's newspaper. Her love for the media extended long past high school because after graduating college, she went on to work for The Sun Journal. She did page designs and she was really good at it. Graphic design had become a passion of hers. When it came to her work at The Sun Journal, she was everyone's cheerleader. Working in the media can sometimes have a me-first vibe, where everyone's concerned about their work and their accomplishments, but Adrian wasn't about that life. If she could help you, she would, no questions asked. In her world, there was enough success to go around, and if she could help you get there, she was going to do it. In 2007, Adrian decided that she wanted to try something new. She was 24 and had the world at her fingertips, so she packed up and moved clear across the country all the way down to Clearwater, Florida. Everything was new, the sun was shining, and there were beaches anywhere you looked. While she worked on getting her own digital design company off the ground, the Sun Journal reports that she got another job working in hotel management. It was definitely different from working at the Sun Journal, but like before, she loved it and everyone she worked with loved her. She was the fun coworker, the one where even on the days where you want to do literally anything else, you get out of bed because you know at least Adrian's going to be there. Florida wound up being kind of a dream. Sure, she missed her family back home, but they were just a long drive or a flight away. She made a lot of really good friends, and I'm talking quality friends, which are hard to come by, one of whom was a guy named Jay. I know there are a lot of people out there who feel like men and women can't genuinely have a strictly platonic friendship, but Adrian and Jay did. Frankly, they mastered it and wound up living together as roommates in a cute little townhouse community off of Woodford Road. They had a blast together, and after work, they would both get to go home and decompress with their best friend. It really doesn't get much better than that. Adrian was living her best life, and it only got better when she met Justin, who was the man of her dreams. He loved her for everything she was, and she loved him the same. Adrian's parents thought he was wonderful, and this was the real thing. It was one of those relationships where even in the beginning, you know you found your person. Adrian had found her person, and in July of 2012, she and Justin decided that they were going to take their relationship to the next level. They were going to forego their individual apartments and get one of their own. Both of them were over the moon excited, and little did she know, that was just the beginning. According to the Sun Journal, Justin had already asked Adrian's dad for his blessing and was planning on proposing to her on her birthday that coming January. Adrian's 30th birthday was going to be the best day of her life, but it's a day that would never happen. Friday, July 13th, 2012 was the last night Adrian and Jay were going to have living together as besties. They wanted to make it a good one, so they poured some drinks at the townhouse and talked about what they were going to do for their one last outing. 
By 10.30, seeing evil reports that they decided it wouldn't be a good idea to drive anywhere, so they chose to walk to a place called Diamond Dolls about a mile away so that they could walk there. Diamond Dolls is a local strip club, but in talking to some people in the area, it's not a dive. It's well-maintained, and it's a place where people do go to hang out and sometimes eat. I was looking at some pictures, and while this has absolutely zero relevance to anything, they have a really impressive, gigantic fish tank in one of their walls. Getting back on track, the two left their condo and walked their way on over to the strip club, grabbed themselves a drink, and just sat down and talked, chatting to whoever dropped by to introduce themselves. They did this for about three hours until around 1.30 a.m. when Adrian decided it was probably time for her to go home and get at least a little sleep so she could be up and at it in the morning, moving boxes and starting a new chapter of her life. Jay was having a good time, so Adrian decided to go ahead and walk home by herself. It was only a mile away, and it's not a walk that she hadn't taken several times before, so no one really thought anything of it. Around 3 a.m., Jay decided to call it a night himself and started the one-mile walk back to the house. He took his time and got back to the townhome around 3.30. Jay completely expected to find Adrian at the house asleep at that point, but something was off. It was eerily silent, and according to TampaBay.com, he noticed that the bathroom door at the top of the stairs was closed. Generally, the door is open unless someone's using it, and Adrian had gone home to go to sleep. Wondering if everything was okay, Jay called out her name, but he didn't get any response from inside the bathroom. That feeling that something was off only grew from there, so he made the decision to open the bathroom door just in case. But what he found inside was something out of a nightmare. On the floor of the bathroom, he found Adrian. Seeing evil reports that she wasn't breathing, her eyes were open, she had a single stab wound to the chest, and there was blood everywhere. There was blood in and on the bathtub, on the shower curtain, on the counter, all over the toilet, and on the floor where her body was laying. There had been a clear struggle inside that bathroom because some of the blood was smeared and contained hand and fingerprints, and the seat of the toilet was broken. I was curious about how hard it is to break a toilet seat, and from what I can find, they can withstand anywhere between 300 and 1,000 pounds of pressure. So the struggle that broke that toilet seat and ended in the murder of Adrian was a big one. Jay was completely horrified. In a state of pure shock, he called 911, and in the episode of See No Evil, you can hear that he's trying with everything he has to relay all the information the dispatcher needs without completely falling apart. She walks him through how to perform CPR on Adrian until the police get there, but as they counted together, one, two, three, four, over and over, you can just hear the pain in his voice as Adrian doesn't respond. After a few minutes that felt like forever, the Pinellas County Sheriff's Department showed up and it was clear that Adrian was gone. She was pronounced dead at the scene. There was no question that this was a homicide, so the investigation started right then, right there.
Detectives started taking photos of all the blood in the bathroom. There was no doubt that that was where Adrian had been killed. But as they started moving outside of the bathroom, they noticed blood on the door frame and on the wall just outside of it. Adrian couldn't have left that bathroom, so the blood on the wall had to have gotten there from the bloody hands of whoever did this to her. Deputies documented as many hand and fingerprints as they possibly could. Moving down the short hallway in the direction of the blood on the wall, they went to Adrian's bedroom. It's there that they realized that the attack on Adrian wasn't solely confined to that bathroom. Towards the top of her bed, just below the pillow, see no evil showed an almost square piece of sheet that had been cut out. This wasn't your average wear and tear of a bed sheet. This was a clear cut. Considering the fact that Adrian was found wearing only her bra and that a piece of bed sheet had been carefully cut out, detectives believe that whoever did this to her was trying to remove evidence from the scene. With the chance that the DNA may have seeped through the sheet and onto the mattress, they took swabs and sent them to the lab for testing. Having covered everything they could on the second story of the townhouse, they moved their way downstairs and saw absolutely zero signs of forced entry. However this person got into the house, they didn't have to break anything to do it. They moved their way outside to see if that could lead them to anything, and it absolutely did. Adrian had walked to and from the club that night, so there was no reason for her very orange Jeep to be missing, but it was. Deputies told See No Evil that they almost immediately concluded that whoever killed Adrian had found her keys and used her Jeep to flee the scene as quickly as possible. Wondering if anyone had seen or heard anything that night, deputies went door-to-door asking questions, and one neighbor had seen something. According to See No Evil, they told investigators that in the wee hours of the morning, they'd seen Adrian jogging with an African-American male. Just to put this into perspective a little, Adrian had worn a dress, a sweater, and dressy slip-on sandals to the club that night. When this neighbor saw her jogging with another man, it was past 1.30 a.m. and she was barefoot in a dress. She had taken her shoes off. Knowing what we know now, it sounded a lot more like she was running from someone than with them. As investigators were banking that statement, they were also getting word that Adrian's vehicle had been located. It was found parked in a little shopping center parking lot with the lights still on and it was running. This parking lot was less than two miles from her townhouse and less than one mile from that strip club. Whoever did this essentially went back the same way they came. Deputies tried getting any usable security footage from surrounding businesses, and while it existed, none of it showed the person ditching her Jeep. Within a few hours of investigating, they had a mountain of evidence, but nothing really to go on just yet, so they interviewed Jay to try and narrow down the timeline of the night. He talked about having drinks at their house and their walk to the strip club, but then he talked about a young African-American male who'd taken interest in them while they were sitting by the stage. In See No Evil, Jay said that the guy came over, sat next to them, they all talked for a while, and that the guy seemed nice enough. They asked him to describe this guy, and he said that he was wearing a baseball hat and had a goatee. Okay, so that's something they could work with. With the new information about the chatty guy at the club, detectives hit the security footage to see if they could see any sign of him. You can view the actual security footage on See No Evil Season 7, Episode 9. 
They started with when Adrian left, and around 1.30 a.m., you see her walk out in her summer dress and sandals, but she's not wearing her sweater. Within seconds, and I mean seconds, a young African-American male with a goatee wearing a baseball hat runs out after her. He catches up with her in the middle of the parking lot and hands her the sweater that she had left inside. That seems like a nice enough gesture, but the guy doesn't go back inside. Instead, they talk for a second in the parking lot, and then he walks with her down the road until they're out of camera view. This is now the last person to have seen Adrian alive. Investigators needed to talk to this guy, but they had no idea who he was. So once again, they went back to the security footage. They looked and looked and looked, and it wasn't until they went back to 5.30 p.m. that they saw him enter the club. Dude had been there for five hours before Jay and Adrian even showed up. That's a total of eight hours in a strip club. That is a whole ass workday. There was some hope that maybe they could ID him through his vehicle, but he had taken a cab there. Yes, this man in Clearwater, Florida had called a cab to take him to a strip club at 5.30 p.m. They couldn't run his plates because they were not existent, but cabs aren't something that people use often in Clearwater, so tracking down the information used to book that particular ride was pretty simple. Detectives called the company and got the phone number that booked the reservation and ran it through their database. Lo and behold, their department had just taken a report that included that phone number days prior. According to the Sun Journal, three days before Adrian's murder, they'd gotten a call about a guy walking alone in the early morning hours of the 11th. They took a report, got the guy's phone number, and the world went on. The phone number belonged to a 23-year-old guy named Thomas Frederick. With a name, they looked up his license photo, and luck be a fucking lady, he looked exactly like the guy Jay described and the guy that ran after Adrian in the parking lot. There was a solid feeling that this was their guy, but they didn't want him to know they were onto him. Hell, they didn't want anyone to know anything. At the time of the murder, there were very few reports on it at all because police weren't saying anything. They knew they had a mountain of evidence, they just had to put all the pieces of the puzzle together, and actually making contact with Thomas was going to be the last one. Thomas had no criminal history, so his DNA wasn't in the system. And that sounds like a bummer, but it kind of tracks. The DNA that had been collected from Adrian's body and her bed had resulted in a profile, but the profile didn't get any hits in the system. If Thomas was their guy, that would explain why they couldn't get a match. They could either ask for his DNA, which likely would have been a hard no and would have tipped him off before they had enough to charge him, or they could shine the bat signal and have all the secret squirrels in the department activate and put Thomas under 24-hour surveillance. If you guessed that they went with the bat signal option, you would be correct. If Thomas was eating, someone was watching. If he was at work, someone was watching. Thomas Frederick couldn't have burped, slept, or farted without the sheriff's department knowing about it. All they needed him to do was throw something away in a public place that had his DNA on it. You'd think that would be a pretty quick process, but it actually took about a week and a half. According to the Sun Journal, a little over a week into their slew surveillance, they watched Thomas throw a cigarette butt out of the car while he was getting a ride to work. Deputies then had to maneuver their way into the intersection unseen, bag the butt, and send it off to the lab for comparison. 
The Pinellas County Sheriff's Department finally had something, and they really felt like this was their guy. In their gut, they knew it, but guts don't get conviction, so they had to wait. The detective told See No Evil that they put a rush on the results because if Thomas was their killer, he was the worst of the worst. The kind of guy capable of brutally killing someone that he didn't even know. The detective called the lab back over and over seeing if they'd gotten the results yet, and after waiting for what felt like forever but was really no time at all, the results were in and it was a match. The DNA found on Adrian's body and on the mattress beneath that piece of sheet that had been cut out was Thomas's. They were right all along and they finally had their guy. Not willing to waste another second, the Pinellas County Sheriff's Department hopped over to Thomas's work, handcuffed him, and took him into the station. From everything I've seen, it doesn't look like he put up a fight at all. Once at the station, they put Thomas into an interrogation room, and he was comfortable as shit. Like he didn't have a single worry in the world. You can see some of the footage on See No Evil, and according to the detective, he was just chatting away about his friends, hookups, and strip clubs, something we're all well aware that he frequents for aggressive amounts of time. It wasn't until they laid down a picture of Adrian that the tone in the room started to change. The stories he was about to tell would follow that same pattern. In the videos on See No Evil, Thomas initially says that he met her and her friend at the strip club, she bought him some drinks, they danced, and that was it. After that, he says he went to work, which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever on any planet in any universe. Naturally, the detective asked him to clarify his claim that he was at a strip club drinking for eight hours before immediately heading off to work, but Thomas stuck to it saying that he did it all the time, which if true is a serious concern, but let's be real here, that's not what happened. Having a whole squad of ducks in a row, the detective showed Thomas the video of him running after Adrian in the parking lot and then walking off with her. And all of a sudden, he remembered that he didn't leave for work after leaving the strip club that night and that he had walked with Adrian, but only to the end of the street and then they'd gone their separate ways. In the footage from See No Evil, Thomas said that he doesn't remember anything after that because when he drinks, he drinks. That smells a little bit like a defense, but let's keep going. Working on the fact that Thomas now had memory issues, detectives asked him if he'd ever been to Adrian's house. He told them that if he had, he didn't remember it. But wait, there's more. His last version of events was that he and her had walked to the end of the road together and then went their separate ways. But now he was saying that Adrian, who didn't know him from a basket of bulls, had asked him to walk her home. Cool, so we've made it from his work to the end of the street and now to her house. They're getting warmer. Because Thomas was taking the lead in his own demise, detectives tried to push him a little further. They asked him if he was walking her home, why did they have a witness saying that he'd seen them running together? His answer was like a back alley remake of the These Aren't My Pants defense. I shit you not, instead of saying that wasn't me or literally anything else, this dingleberry told the detectives that Adrian wanted to run. It got really icky when he even seemed to impersonate a female voice saying she was like, I need to run. He added that he didn't know where they were running to, so he was just following her. 
I can only imagine the bumbling dumbass version of relief he was feeling here, where on the umpteenth attempt at a believable story, he got what he felt like was a real shot at explaining why he was seen chasing a girl who was found murdered hours later. Unfortunately for him, and fortunately for everyone else, the idea that a complete stranger who was familiar with the area asked him to walk her home and then took off her shoes and decided that she needed to run barefoot in a dress with him trailing behind her and he was just down for it was indeed complete trash. Detectives had their fun getting Thomas tangled up in stories that contradicted each other and bullshit he couldn't explain and at that point decided the game was over. They told him that they had his DNA and that they know he killed her. If you could measure the velocity of fucked, Thomas got there in record time. It was at that moment that he knew he needed to come up with a completely new story, and he went with the one that everyone knew he would, that he killed Adrian in self-defense. This story was no less ridiculous than the last. This time, and I'll remind everyone that you can see this footage on See No Evil, he said that he went back to Adrian's house and that the night before she was set to move in with the love of her life, the two had consensual sex. After having sex, he said that Adrian threw up, but they kept talking. Not sure why he would mention her throwing up unless he needed to place her in the bathroom. But lo and behold, that's where he says they were when he claims they got into an argument. Over what? Who knows? And then magically, defying all logic, there was a kitchen knife in the bathroom, which Thomas claims Adrian picked up and swung. Thomas said that right then and there, he had to defend himself and that the knife plunged into her. He used the actual term plunged. Let's be very clear here that knives don't do anything on their own. People do things with knives. He might want to remove himself from the situation by saying that the knife plunged into her, but he plunged that knife into Adrian. After doing that, he says that he became hysterical. However, I guess he wasn't too hysterical to then take the knife to cut his DNA out of her bedsheet and then find her keys and steal her Jeep to flee the scene. According to the Sun Journal, he wound up telling police where to find the knife he used to kill Adrian, and it was found wrapped in that piece of bedsheet that he had cut out. This is a case where, in the beginning, there were very few details about how Adrian died. The sheriff's department wasn't giving the media anything to report on, and from the outside looking in, you could have come to the incorrect conclusion that nothing was being done. But that was the exact opposite of the truth. The Pinellas County Sheriff's Department didn't stop for a single second trying to track down exactly who did this. And they didn't charge Thomas until they knew they had their guy. Until they knew that no matter what he said in that interrogation room, he'd be up a shit creek without a popsicle stick. 23-year-old Thomas Frederick was charged with the first-degree murder of 29-year-old Adrian Robert. He was also charged with one count of grand theft auto for stealing her Jeep after the fact. The Sun Journal reports that the day of his arrest fell on Adrian's parents' 25th wedding anniversary. A family member told the journal that it was the best gift they could have gotten. Adrian's parents had been expecting to get a call about their daughter moving in with the love of her life, but instead got a call that she had been murdered. They had to travel all the way down to Florida to have her body moved home so they could bury her, 
and they had to plan her funeral instead of her wedding. They spoke to See No Evil and said that the most painful thing they had to do was drive her Jeep back to Maine, knowing that the last person who drove it was the man who stole their daughter from them. They sat in the Jeep on brown paper that the sheriff's department had laid down for them so the fingerprint dust wouldn't stain their clothes. Adrian's parents were at a point in their lives where the best gift they could have gotten on their 25th wedding anniversary was the news that the man who murdered their daughter had been arrested, and that should break everyone's hearts. It took a year and a half for Thomas to stand trial, but in January of 2014, it began. Both the defense and the prosecution agreed that Thomas had killed Adrian. They just grossly disagreed on the circumstances. According to See No Evil, prosecutors believed that he followed her home from the club and when she noticed something was wrong, started to run, at some point taking off her shoes. When she was found, her feet were scraped up from running on the concrete. They believed that somehow he got into her house, went into her bedroom, and then forced her into the bathroom. Though Thomas was not charged with rape due to what they say was lack of evidence, it was reported on the show that the injuries to Adrian's body were not consistent with consensual sex. She had bruising to her arms consistent with being held down and bruising consistent with sexual battery. Thomas maintained that he killed Adrian out of self-defense, and her father told the Sun Journal that throughout the trial, he showed no emotion, no remorse, and even seemed cocky at times. When it came time for deliberations, the Cinemaholic reports that it took the jury just two hours to come up with one unanimous decision. They found him guilty on all counts, and in something we honestly rarely see, at least not enough when it comes to heinous crimes, Thomas Frederick was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Thomas stole an entire life, not only from Adrian, but from the lives of the people she loved. While no amount of justice will bring Adrian back, Thomas Frederick will never breathe a single breath of free air so long as he shall live. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Adrian's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, all your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch, and of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.